We're in Daniel. We started, we did an overview a week ago. We're in chapter 1 today. I've mentioned to a couple other guys I've noticed as I decided a month or so back to teach through Daniel to make this the next uh, teaching project, so to speak, that there are at least two or three radio programs that are also teaching through the book of Daniel now. So if you tune into 88.9, and I'm not sure what other station, or I can't even tell you time of day, come to think of it. But there's at least two or three radio programs that are also teaching through the book of Daniel. On one hand, I think it's funny. On the other, I kind of assume it means maybe God wants the church to be hearing what's coming out of the book of Daniel now. We talked about its importance just morally and teaching as far as character issues, but also because it does deal with world events, the big scope of history, and perhaps to some degree where we fit in all of that. So we're in Daniel 1 this morning, and I want to introduce the passage by telling you briefly about a movie my family and I watched uh, one to two weeks ago. The movie's called Quiz Show, made in 1994 by Robert Redford. Uh, Pretty good movie. I can't remember if there's much cussing in it, Uh, so I don't know if I can tell you to watch it with your kids. I, I forget. Anyway, it tells the true story of a game show, probably the most popular game show in the 1950s, called 21. And the concept of the game was simple. Two competitors would attempt to answer questions. The first one to answer 21 questions correctly would win. And there were significant cash prizes. Because it was a popular show, it was very well known. And if you were a consistent winner, you became a household name throughout the country. You were well known. So there was money at stake, honor, fame, etc. As it all turned out, as it settled out later, they found out that the show was a scam. And it was a fraud. And it wasn't that everybody on wasn't bright. They were bright people for the most part. It wasn't that everything was a scam, but it was that the outcome of the game was fixed. The outcome of the game was fixed. It was a fraud and a scam. And uh, we'll talk about that again here at the end of uh, our teaching. In Daniel chapter 1, we're going to see that there's four key verses, uh, hinges, if you will. Figure a door opens or closes on every one of these verses. Daniel's text hinges on these. Verse 2, it says, the Lord gave, and depending on your translations, these words may vary a little bit. Verse 2 says, the Lord gave. Verse 9 says, God gave or God brought favor. And verse 17 says, God gave uh, knowledge. We'll look at those things later. And then verse 8, three verses that tell us God gave. One verse, verse 8, that says, Daniel purposed or Daniel made up his mind, depending on your translation. Daniel 1.1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. He, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. First key passage, first key verse, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar. 
If you remember in the introduction, Jeremiah had been telling them for decades that God was going to deliver Judah, the remaining southern kingdom, into the hands of Babylon. And he told them why. It was for judgment and discipline because of their idolatry. There's actually a few key reasons, but we'll just stick with that for now. They'd been committing idolatry with the gods of the nations around them, and God had warned them and told them with no uncertainty that they were going to Babylon to captivity. In their midst, though, Jeremiah's he's telling them this is what God's doing, but in their midst, there's a bunch of false prophets. And the false prophets say, he's all wrong. God's not delivering us into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he's going to break Nebuchadnezzar's power, and we're going to stay here, and we're going to remain independent and strong. And these were the guys that were saying, peace, peace, when in reality there was no peace to be had. Jeremiah's word was true. God was speaking. God had said, you're going into captivity. So God gave them into captivity. At an application level for you and I, I think it's interesting that many Christians, many times, if you're experiencing difficulty, trials, struggles, chastisement, whatever you want to say, if you're experiencing it in your life, some people will be quick to tell you that this isn't from God. You need to reject that. You need to pray against the enemy. This isn't from God. He doesn't want you to experience this pain, this trial, this suffering. And you know... Sometimes the enemy's at work, and, and he's working against us. And, but you know, sometimes, as our home group discussed, because God uses all things, bends all things to his will, even if Satan is at work in your life or mine, God still promises to use that for his end, to accomplish his purposes. And when you and I are in positions of discipline, pain, suffering, don't just assume that somehow you've fallen off and God's out of control and your life's out of control. But ask God, Lord, is this thing from you? What are you wanting to accomplish in my life through this pain, through this uncomfortable thing? Don't be too quick to simply write it off and saying the enemy's after me. Ask God, Lord, is this from you? Are you wanting to clean me up? Are you wanting to purge my life of something? Is this pain here for redemptive purpose. And see, in Daniel's case and in Judah's case, this is entirely redemptive in the end. Because when they're taken to Babylon, they're a nation that commits idolatry every day. They don't know God. They don't trust God. When they return from Babylon, you never read in the rest of the Old Testament that Judah, Israel, the remaining part of Israel in the south, you never read about them having a problem with idolatry again. Babylon did cure them. Babylon was the cure for this sin, for this specific sin. There will be other sins to take care of in the future, but this captivity was from God. This was a judgment from God. It was a chastisement. It was a discipline. And it was God that gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God was at work. The exile was his plan, and it was to deliver his people from something that wasn't pleasing to him, and wasn't good for them. Hebrews 12 tells us, applying this to ourselves today, no discipline at the time seems joyful. When you and I experience hard things, whether God's removing some positive evil from our life or whether he's just actively at work to make us more like himself, Hebrews 12 says no 
discipline at the time seems joyful but painful. We don't ask for these times and we don't want them. But it says, but to those who are trained in it, it produces righteousness. And then we see the joy. We see the fruit afterwards. But this exile, this captivity, this judgment, it was straight from God's hand. Daniel leaves us absolutely no doubt they were exactly where God wanted them for the purposes God had already determined. So the exile, the judgment was from God. God gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Continuing at verse 3, the story says, The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking or handsome, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving the king's court. So he said, remember, he's deported only some of the people. Jerusalem's not destroyed with this. That won't happen for many years. At this point, he's deported the key nobles, the key politicians, the people who might be able to lead a rebellion have primarily all been removed. He's removed most of the chief artisans and craftsmen. In other words, he's taken the best out of Judah and brought it to his house, so to speak, for his benefit. So of the best, he's taking the best, the brightest, the most handsome, the most articulate and intelligent. These are probably the the, uh, scholars of their time. And he is going to educate them so that they can serve him in his court. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was nothing if not a shrewd and wise leader. He didn't just take these folks and kill them. He didn't write them off. He took the best of the best and used it for his own purposes. This was shrewd and wise. It says, verse 5, The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were entered the king's personal service. These were guys, we could say they had their bachelor's and master's degrees, but they're going to receive a Ph.D., in Babylon, they're going to go to the Yale and the Harvards of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and going to get their Ph.D. So they'll come out educated and wise and able to help the king in his counsels. Among these, when this says among these, you know in the rest of Daniel we read about four Jewish men, don't we? But these were just four of several. We read about the four that remain true to God. We don't read about the rest, but there were others. There were others. Among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So he's taking the best of the best. He's educating them. And isn't this nice? This is, this is a time of judgment. And you know what these guys, they're put up at the best hotel. They get the best food. They've got the best of everything. Exile doesn't look too bad to these guys at this point. Or does it? Look at verse 8. I would venture to say that verse 8 of chapter 1 hangs the entire book of Daniel. If we remove verse 8 from chapter 1 and from the book, there is no book of Daniel. There is no story of Daniel. You and I would never hear of the exiled Daniel in Babylon. There would be no fiery furnace. There would be no lion's den. There would be no interpretation of dreams. All of this hangs on 
what is in some ways an insignificant verse, verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Up to verse 8, we're just reading a nice story. We're walking down the path and our foot trips on a rock at verse 8. What's the problem, Daniel? You're in exile where God wants you, but hey, it's not too bad. You're going to be educated. You're going to be in the best surroundings, the, the richest places, and you're going to get the best food and the choicest wine. What's the problem? One problem. Daniel understood that to eat this food and drink this wine would defile him that this would come between he and his God and would make him unholy. If we ask the question, what's this about? There's probably two things at issue here. The first, likely, is that Daniel knew that part of the king's table would include foods that he was forbidden to eat in the law. If there was pork or if there were other kinds of animals that, that might be on the king's table, it would include things he could not eat, that the law forbid Jews to eat. That would be one thing. The other thing, and probably the more likely as far as the reason he wouldn't eat or drink any of it, was that in this day, all this food would have been offered to the gods of Babylon. All the king's food, all the king's wine, all this stuff had been offered to the gods of Babylon. And so Daniel felt that to participate in eating this food was, in essence, to attach himself to the idolatry with which it was connected. He understood in his mind, whether we follow this or not, whether we would agree with it or not, he understood in his conscience and in his mind, he understood that to eat this food would pollute him, that it would remove his holy standing from a holy God and attach him to idolatry. Daniel knows that they're in Babylon because of idolatry. He's taking the high ground, and he's saying, I'm not going to be polluted. I'm not going to be defiled. Lord, I'm going to remain holy to you. I'm not going to eat any of this food. Now, on one level, I think you or I, if we're in the same position, we might say, as I assume others did, this food and wine thing, this is not a big deal. Why bother? This is a little thing. You know, if I hedge a little bit on this food, if I eat a little bit of this stuff, sacrifice to these idols, well, so what? You know, I'll still honor the Lord in the big things. I'll give in in this little area and I'll avoid a little trouble. I'll go along and I'll get along and there'll be no problem. And then I'll be in a position to really help where the big things come in. They could have said this. And again, I assume some did. Daniel did not, nor did his friends. And it's amazing to me, and I think this is a great example, that it is the little things in your life and mine that make or break us. Most of us entertain a wrong notion that we can give in and sin in little areas and it won't matter because in the big things we'll stay true. You know what? It doesn't work that way. The scripture is clear. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospels, if you're faithful in the little thing, you'll be faithful with much. And if you're not faithful in the little things, don't kid yourself, you won't be faithful with more. This is just a little thing, this food. But if Daniel, if we didn't have Daniel 1.8, if we didn't trip on this little phrase, but Daniel, if Daniel hadn't drawn a line in the sand at this point, where would his life have ended? When would he have said, enough is enough, I'm going to be true to my God? If he hadn't started here, when would he? 
Where did the others that aren't mentioned in the rest of the book that Daniel and his three friends were members of, a larger club, where are the rest? We never hear of them. I assume that their lives remained insignificant compared to Daniel's. It is in the little things of life that we determine the course of the rest of our life. It is verse 8 that creates, if you will, the rest of Daniel's life, the rest of the story, and all the other lessons we get. I'm challenged by this personally. It makes me ask myself questions, and I certainly hope you'll ask yourself questions. In my life, in the little things, maybe things no one else knows about, your thought life, your taxes, the way you go to work, the way you serve others, you know what I'm saying? Little things, things that you don't consider a big deal, are you being faithful in them? And are you erecting fences in your life, hedges, protective barriers that are going to keep you from sin when temptation comes? Temptation will come to all of us. It's a given. We live in this world. Temptation will come. Are you and I being shrewd and wise and setting our hearts like Daniel to remain holy? A few examples come quickly to mind. In our culture, for men, lust and pornography are the two greatest sins I can think of that are pervasive. If you're a man in this society and you've not already set a fence and a boundary and set your heart and purposed in your heart to remain holy, you will not. You must erect the fence. You must say, like Daniel... I'm not going there. There's a line in the sand. I'm going to remain holy. I'm not going to defile myself. I think for women, sometimes illicit romantic relationships that may exist no place other than your own mind. What are you doing to stay holy, to remain true to God? For kids in a society that values rebellion and disrespect, what are you doing to guard your heart towards your parents and towards others in, towards others in authority over you? so that you're not defiling yourself, you're not giving in to sin, because the temptations will come. It's not if, it's when. And if we're not prepared for it ahead of time, we're probably going to fall. And as our story just rolls along here, we trip on this little stone that says, but Daniel. But Daniel. This sets the course for the rest of his life and for the rest of this book. And I wonder, too, as I think about this, how many of us lead insignificant lives because we never draw a line in the sand? How many of us lack or miss the favor that we'll see in the future, here in this book, the favor, the success, the influence, and I mean all in a godly sense, not, not fleeting worldly fame, how many of us miss real significance in life because unlike Daniel, we've not determined in our heart to be holy, because we've not made up our mind, because we've not closed the door on temptation, drawn a line in the sand, and said we will not sin. We will not cross that. We need to. We need to bear, dare to be a Daniel. We need to dare to have a cause. We need to dare to be holy Look at verse 9. Verse 8 sets the stage. Look at verse 9, though. This is one of the three verses that tell us, us what God did. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. 
God gave Daniel favor and compassion. In response to Daniel saying, Lord, I want to be holy, God says, Daniel, I'm going to help you. In response to Daniel saying to God, I want to honor you, God says, Daniel, I'm going to honor you. In response to this decision in a little area of life, God says to Daniel, I'm going to exalt you and use you because of your decision to be holy and faithful to me. I love this. 1 Samuel 2.30 reads, Those who honor me, I will honor, God says. Those who despise me, they'll be lightly esteemed. Those who honor me, God says, the king of the universe, I'll honor. But those who despise me, those who don't make me holy, those who don't value me, will themselves be lightly esteemed. God loves to honor those who honor him. Think of Matthew 6.33 in a practical sense. Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount about all the things we need in life, very practical, food, homes, jobs, income. But the point he puts on the end of that at Matthew 6.33, hopefully a verse you all know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then God will provide all the rest of the things you need. God says, you put me and my things first, I will take care of the things you need. But put me where I belong, at the top of the list. Make me your priority. Make honoring me your priority. We need to dare to put God first and to fully serve and honor him above all else. And then we can wait and see how he chooses to bless and honor in response. Some of us are going to live lives in which we can be faithful every day. We may not see a lot of honor or worldly success here. But you know, if you're patient... There's going to be a day when you'll stand before the Lord and whatever you did or did not experience in life, guaranteed, when you see Christ face to face and he blesses you and honors you and rewards you for your faithfulness here, you're not going to regret anything that you sacrifice. You're not going to regret any decision to be holy or to honor him first when you see him face to face. At verse 10, continues, the commander of the official said to Daniel, Uh, remember what we just read, the end of verse 9. Is it the end of verse 9 in the site? Uh, I'm losing my place, guys. Anyway, he's asked to be excused from the food. And the commander of the official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who's appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. He says, hey, I that's fine. You don't want to eat this food and drink this wine. I'm a little concerned. My life is at stake here in your health. Why should I do this thing? Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed, over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and then deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter, appeared healthier, than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and kept giving them vegetables. I love Daniel's response here. Now, on one hand, he has set his heart to remain holy, unequivocally, no question about it, no doubt. But when he's interacting 
with those in authority over him, look at what he does. Verse 8 says he sought permission. Daniel did not come to the authority over him and demand his way. He did not come and tell the guy that he was God's servant and you're going to do it my way. He humbly went to the man in authority over him and it says he sought permission. We shouldn't confuse this that he's hedging on maybe I'll obey, maybe I won't. He's not. He's determined whatever the outcome, he's determined. But when he's interacting with the person who's in authority over him, he's not demanding. He's humble and he seeks or asks permission to be excused. Along with that, very wisely, verses 12 through 14, he humbly seeks permission, and then he wisely proposes a reasonable test. This will come up again. He proposes a reasonable test. He understands that the man in charge over him has something to lose. Daniel knows he has something to lose, and he can gamble, so to speak, with his own life, but he doesn't impose on this other man. So he proposes a reasonable solution. Understanding that this man has something to lose, he says, look, why don't we do this? Would you be willing to give us us a 10-day test? In other words, in 10 days, it's a little bit of time. If we're losing weight, if our health is deteriorating because we're not eating your choice food, then that's long enough for you to see it but not so long that your health, your head, is going to be at stake. Because we could then come back, you could make us eat the choice food like the rest. On the other hand, 10 days would be enough that if our health is going to be okay, you'll see that also. So he seeks permission humbly with the authority over him. He proposes a reasonable test. And in doing so, he gives, time, he gives God time to interact on his behalf. This comes up again in chapter 2. Very wise. I just think this, for us as Christians, uh, sometimes we're ready to get on our righteous footstool and demand our way in whatever arena of public life or private life. But I think this example from Daniel is a great example for us. When we're dealing with authorities over us, humbly seek permission and propose reasonable tests or reasonable guidelines for something. Uh, Daniel does not come across demanding, humbly ask permission, follows through wisely making a proposal, giving God time to act and interact on their behalf. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Verse 17, like verses 2 and 9, God gave. God gave. God gave. In this case, he gave knowledge, intelligence, and the understanding of dreams and visions. Now, we know these guys were sharp when they entered this program. They wouldn't have been there if they weren't. So it wasn't as if God took guys who had no intelligence and made them superhuman. But God gave a wisdom and a knowledge that they would not have had otherwise. And he gave them in Daniel's understanding of visions and dreams, understanding and insight that was impossible apart from God giving it. And again, this will come come back repeatedly in Daniel's book here. But God gave them knowledge, wisdom, 
inside. It was God's to give. He gave it based on their former faithfulness. Verse 18 says, At the end of the days which the king had specified, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So, based on this little faithfulness in verse 8, but Daniel, but Daniel and his friends setting their heart, God gives. He gave compassion and favor. God gave knowledge and insight and wisdom. And when they're presented before Nebuchadnezzar, he recognizes in them this ability that is so superabundant more than his others. Daniel says, ten times better. Ten times better. And verse 21 is interesting. When this tells us that Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king, uh, this is telling us a lot, actually. Uh, this tells us that Daniel outlives Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. This tells us that Daniel doesn't just live a short life, but that he outlives the Babylonian empire. In other words, God's man, faithful to him, outlives the pagan Gentile power that God was using to discipline them. Remember in the Old Testament, longevity was a sign of God's blessing. Well, Daniel, who could have faced death at verse 8 for not eating the king's food, Daniel and his friends who will face death again in coming chapters, Daniel outlives the kings. The powerful entities on the earth who held life and death over them, Daniel outlives them all. Daniel outlives the kingdom that they ruled, the world empire. He outlives this man who simply drew a line in the sand and said, God, I'm going to remain faithful to you. Getting back to the quiz show, Daniel and his friends, they were good-looking, sharp, intelligent young men. And in the quiz show, in the movie, and in real life, this really, this guy just like Daniel, this sharp, good-looking, well-educated young guy called Charles Van Doren, part of the nobility and the elite of the East Coast. This guy was part of a famous family. Father won the Pulitzer Prize. Mother was a well-known author. Father was some well-known guy. He was part of the elite. This is handsome, schooled in astrophysics and math, Ph.D. in literature. This guy was good-looking, and he was everything that the show 21 wanted. He actually applied to go on a separate show because he didn't make much money at Columbia University where he taught. And he was told by a fellow associate professor that he could make some bucks on one of these competitive shows. So he applies for tic-tac-doe or something like that, and the producers see him, and they hear his name. And the wheels start turning. And they've got a guy on the quiz show, the show 21, that they want to get rid of. And Charles Van Doren looks like a golden boy that they can put in and increase their ratings. And the bottom line behind all this was the show 21, it was manipulated to increase ratings because when ratings increased, Geritol sold more product. 
Direct correlation. The show's producers understood this, so did Geritol. That's why it was fixed, because they made more money. And because they would diagram the tension, they would make these shows where they would tie three shows in a row just to get viewership up as high as they could and sell more Geritol. That was the bottom line. Charles Van Dorn, he doesn't know this when he comes in. He's coming in to try and earn a few more bucks on a game show. But he's brought in to the show 21, and he's willing to compete. But after he gets there, the temptation comes. And then they tell him, well, you know, let us give you a few of these answers. No big thing. And his first thought is, no, I couldn't do that. Wouldn't that be cheating? They assure him, no, this really isn't. And really, you know what, if you won... It would really be a good thing because you're this clean-cut scholar. And just think of all the children in America. You could benefit because they'd be encouraged if they see this clean-cut guy who studied hard and is successful, then they'd be encouraged to study hard at school. And wouldn't that be a good thing? And Charlie has erected no walls. Charlie has not made up his mind. Charlie has not determined in his heart. And Charlie bites. And they say they knew he would. And Charlie goes on to become a household name. Charlie goes on in his day to earn over $130,000. I suppose in our, that'd be over half a million in today's economy easily. He's a household name. He's got fame. In fact, he signs a contract with NBC for $150,000 a year or something to just make spot appearances. He's got the good life. Life by the tail is now his. Fame, fortune. He's got 500 letters coming in a week. He's got to get an unlisted phone number. All these women want want him. Life is so good, and all he had to do was cheat just a little bit. But then the story's not over there, obviously, because the roosters come home, don't they? Congress subcommittee holds hearings on these game shows. And though Charles Van Doren denies for some extensive time, in the end he must confess to the nation that he's a liar and a cheat and a fraud. And Charlie Van Doren, who drew no line in the sand, who didn't purpose in his heart, who didn't make up his mind, who could have led, who knows how successful a life, who knows how God might have chosen to bless him. We don't know and he won't know. Because he didn't purpose in his heart, he didn't make up his mind. When temptation came, he gave in. And so now, the name Charles Van Doren, instead of us thinking about this elite family on the East Coast... Pulitzer Prize-winning family, author of books, Ph.D., we think of a fraud and a cheat and a scam. See, verse 8 came up in his life. He wasn't ready. And so now, this is his heritage. He had what looked like success there for a while. He had it all. But it all came down. And sometimes you may know people in your life, and I certainly know people in mine, we may say they look like they're down. But you know what? Just as quickly as Charlie Van Doren's fortunes fell, God can raise up you and I and people just like us just for being faithful in the little things of life. Our lives will be made or broken on the little things. And I I come back to this question, have you and have I, have you made up your mind? Have you determined 
in your heart? Have you erected the hedges and the fences to keep yourself from sin, to honor God first, to stay holy because he's holy? That's the bottom line. Charlie Van Dorn didn't. And it cost him. And if you and I don't, it'll cost us as well. And let's just take a minute and pray. All of us have issues in our lives. We always do. Take a moment and confess to God anything that's an issue between you and he, anything that defiles or compromises your being holy for his sake, any area in your life in which you've been holding out and refusing to give to him, areas in your life maybe in which you haven't set up the fences in which temptation perhaps has already come. Let's just take a moment to do that now. Father, I think of the scripture that says our righteousness is as filthy rags before you. Lord, none of us can claim holiness in your sight based on our own lives, but in Christ Jesus you have clothed us with righteousness itself, and we can stand before you holy and blameless. Father, I pray that that initial work on our behalf would not be the end of holiness in our lives, but that holiness would not be a dirty word to us, but a blessed one. And that you would help each one of us make up our mind, determine in our heart purpose to put you and your things first. Lord, to humbly put you and your things first and to decide to be holy Whatever the cost, whatever area of our life that affects, Lord, help us in faith and in full confidence in you. Put you and your things first and allow you to bless and honor and give compassion and mercy and success and insight as you see fit. But Lord, help us prepare for the temptations before they come. Help us to dare to be a Daniel, Lord. Help us not to live a life like Charlie Van Doren, who no doubt would love to go back and do things over. But Lord, help us to determine today to honor you first. In Jesus' name, amen.